We've got to be the dumbest team in America. And history's team, Notre Dame. Here comes the Irish. <laughs> See that? That's your IQ, buddy. Zero. Let's forget who we're playing this week and just write about how funny I am. <laughs> and then we'll have a good time. And we'll just we'll clown around every day. And I got some magic tricks I'll show you. Well, going back the Clint Klaus Show. Feeling soxy. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving weekend. Hope it was filled with fun, good times with the family, and a ton of football, which was was which is what we are going to recap. Both of our teams, the Bears and Notre Dame, did not particularly have good endings. I mean, the Bears today was just absolutely horrible, horrible performance by them. Notre Dame in a um, big spot against USC just couldn't really answer the call against a, you know, against Caleb Williams. And we also have some White Sox news. The White Sox finally made a signing, their first signing of the offseason. We will get into all of that and a bunch of other football stuff going on in the college football world. We had a pretty weekend of college football last week of the regular season obviously we had a couple crazy nfl games probably won't get into too much of that but let's get right into it with the chicago bears the chicago bears who basically decided that they weren't going to play justin fields which in my opinion was the right call you the bears are not in a position it's something that i mentioned on the previous podcast that the the bears are not really they're not in a position to really win games they're really in a position to try and get a lower draft pick even though I'm sure that nobody will really admit that I mean nobody in the NFL is really going to admit that they are tanking but at the end of the day it was best for the Chicago Bears that Justin Fields was not out there and that was the main story going into the game and I think it was the right call for the most part I mean the way that the Bears offensive line has been struggling to protect Justin Fields and you know, we'll get into the game today, but they were struggling to protect Trevor Simeon today. You know, the New York Jets have a very good defense. It's probably the one thing that has been carrying them throughout this entire year. And, you know, with the decision to not play Justin Fields, you ba- the Bears decided it was going to be a Trevor Simeon game. You know, we'll let Trevor Simeon go out there and take the beatings, which is, you know, <laughs> which is kind of what the, the backup quarterback is if you have a younger quarterback. You basically have a, a veteran guy to go out there to basically go out there and take the beatings. Well, it just gets a little bit weirder from there. So after the Bears announced that Justin Fields was going to be inactive for the game, they promoted Jay, Nathan Peterman up to the from the practice squad, which was even more evident. And then there was reports coming out that Nathan Peterman was actually going to start the game for the Bears, which, you know, it went from it was going to be Trevor Simeon. And then I guess Trevor Simeon injured injures his oblique in the in the pregame warmups. I don't really I don't know how you how you manage that. I mean, but hey, injuries can happen at sports at really at any point in time. At even in the warmups, I mean, Trevor Simeon, and then and then next thing you know, that Trevor Simeon's out there behind center. He he later would say that he was embarrassed by the oblique injury, and it really made me a little bit nervous because on the other side, the Jets were going with Mike White, who had the tremendous performance of having over 300 yards against the 
Bengals, who would go on to win the Super Bowl. He had a really good game last year, but that was followed up by a not really a great performance against the Patriots. He ended up getting hurt against the Colts, and that was, you know, the last of Mike White for last year. This was obviously the first Mike White game, and, you know, and the Bears defense definitely made it a they made it a, a known that Mike White was going to have himself a day. And, you know, I know a lot of people were melting down saying, hey, this is this is what the Jets needed. Well, I guess it was because the Jets offense under Zach Wilson was just going nowhere. It was, you know, especially last week when they had 12 yards of offense in the second half against the Patriots. That's not going to get it done, especially when you have a really good defense in the new with the what the Jets have. And it was pretty obvious that the Bears weren't going to play them. They made the right call. Trevor Simeon was just getting shellacked out there, especially in the second half. The Jets were able to get to him. I think they had three sacks in the second half. Simeon threw a bad interception. Overall, it was a this was a, a really a boring game in terms of the standpoint for the Bears. The defense was all banged up. They had no Jaquan Brisker, no Kyler Gordon. Eddie Jackson would later leave the the game after he was making a tackle with an injury. Darnell Mooney got hurt in this game. And, you know, the injuries are really starting to pile up for the Bears. You know, it's kind of getting to that point where now guys are really kind of starting to stay healthy are tr having trouble staying healthy and trying to stay on the field. I mean, Mike White just absolutely was just carving up the Bears defense, especially when you saw that Brisker and Gordon weren't really going to play, that it was going to be a tough day for the Bears secondary, regardless of who was behind center for the New York Jets. I mean, I even think Zach Wilson probably would have had himself a career day if he was behind center for the Jets today. But I mean, Mike White, let's just be honest. He, he basically just went in there and just shoved it all over all over the Bears. He passed for three touchdowns, 315 yards. Really a rough day for the Bears defense on the side of the ball. But, you know, we this has really kind of been a norm for the Bears defense where they just struggle to get opponents off of the field. Offenses are really taking advantage of the mistakes and really the whole the roster holes of the Bears defense, which, it, you know, it's it's really obvious when we watch these games. You know, rinse and repeat. You know, Justin Fields performs, the Bears lose. But, you know, this was not a rinse and repeat game because Justin Fields did not play. But, you know, this was not a it was a very ugly performance. And it was one that really kind of put a lot of people to sleep. I know I really lost interest in this game midway through the third quarter. Like I, you know, the Bears really did nothing on offense after they had their first two drives that ended up going with a field goal. And then Byron Pringle was able to find the end zone. Nice to see Byron Pringle making an appearance in the Bears passing game, along with Chase Claypool. He had a nice 36 yard game, but. You know, outside of that, you know, not really a whole lot of good coming out of this Bears loss. It's their fifth in a row. They're seven out of their last eight games that the Bears have lost. And it's really kind of trending downhill. And plus, you know, we're kind of at the point where we're going to be looking at draft picks and a lot of three and eight teams won today. So that's pretty good for the Bears in terms of draft position, try and get up there and get a draft pick. I really don't have a whole lot on this game because they're, you know, this is not really, it's really one of those games where you kind of just, you kind of want to forget about not really one that you find really memorable. I mean, the bears offense had its moments in the first half where, it, where they were looking like that they were going to make this a shootout between Trevor Simeon and Mike white. It looked like that it was going to be heading that way, but the bears offense in the second half just could not do anything to save the least. I mean, Trevor Simeon and the, and the Bears offense was just not getting it done. Got shut out in the second half. And I mean, statistically, when you look at the Bears, it's a little bit misleading. But 
I feel like they they got dominated in this game, especially in the second half. I mean, Trevor Simeon, you know, he he was kind of just out there to throw out to the Wolves. You know, Chase Claypool, who was the Bears' leading receiver, had 51 yards, and you know, for the most part, it's not really you know they had the not really a whole lot from this game that you really have a whole lot of recapping on. I mean, if Justin Fields obviously played, because Fields is really bit is really the only talking point with the Chicago Bears team and. You know, the decision to not let him play, I think they made the right call because you you do kind of want to look ahead and try and save up for those guys to try and get one more win of the season to maybe beat the Packers. I know that Green Bay has been very beatable at times this year, but the Bears make it seem like that they just, it, it's just hard. You know, we obviously knew what the season was going to be going in and, you know, it just, we knew this was going to be a rebuilding year, but you know, the way that this year has gone in terms of how this Bears team performs on a day in and day out basis. I mean, this was really the first game all year in which they were just absolutely dominated in, in which this game was just absolutely over at midway through the third quarter when they just could not do anything offensively and defensively, just really poor tackling. You know, I know the conditions were not really ideal for an offensive football day, but Mike, Mike White was just carving up the Bears secondary and the Bears were quite frankly, just really poor tackling. I believe it was Ty Johnson who had the, the long touchdown run. He had a 32 yard touchdown run. This guy broke three tackles and these guys are just trying to make one arm tackles. That's not going to get it done in the national football league. You know, I know that the, this bears defense has a lot of guys that really aren't going to be there going forward. And it's pretty obvious when you watch it on the field and you try and watch them struggle to try and tackle, whether it was Zay Zach Knight or Ty Johnson or Garrett Wilson, who was just a force to be reckoned with. He was just carving up balls left and right. I mean, there's not really a whole lot that you can say that is a lot of good from this Bears game. But, you know, obviously, when we look at what this Bears team was supposed to be this year, we know that this was not really a good Bears team, but one that could be frisky and be involved at the end of some games with Justin Fields. But, you know, with no fields in this game, I mean, the Bears realistically had no shot. I mean, once Fields was basically announced that he was day-to-day and probably not going to play, I mean, they had no shot. I mean, I don't care if Trevor Simeon plays. I I don't care who starts. I mean, they, Trevor Simeon and the Bears backups just had no chance whatsoever. I mean, and that's with Mike White starting the game. I mean, if Zach Wilson plays, maybe it's a little bit closer, but I don't even think the Bears defense could have stopped Zach Wilson. I mean, Zach Wilson probably would have had a career day against this Bears defense, so... Now we are going to have all this instant reaction of, hey, Mike White. And I mean, granted, I mean, when, when you have Mike White looking like a 300-yard passer, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are going to say that that's an instant upgrade over Zach Wilson. But, you know, a tough day at the office for our Chicago Bears. You know, the, the big one is next against the Green Bay Packers. We'll obviously recap that game later on in the week whenever we get a little bit closer to game time. We'll kind of let this week 12 game kind of simmer in which was not really a good a good game for the bears but you know week 12 had a lot of great slate of nfl games i kind of want to touch on some nfl games before i kind of move over into the college ranks of things you know the thanksgiving day thanksgiving day games were absolutely great i mean the buffalo detroit game was absolutely the, it was the game of the day for the thanksgiving day of slate of games you know buffalo 
Bucks offense and really the second half really just kind of ran into a wall when it looked like at one point in time that it was going to be more of an offensive shootout. There was probably should have been more points that should have been scored in this game. And, you know, Josh Allen had a uh, tough red zone interception. And really in the second half, you know, the Bills offense just literally could not move the ball against the Lions defense. And for the Detroit Lions, you know, they weren't able to really find the end zone. The Lions are definitely for real. You know, we know that they beat the Bears a couple weeks ago. They beat the Giants last week and really almost beat the Buffalo Bills. I mean, the Detroit Lions look like a team that could sneakily find themselves maybe back into the playoff race. I mean, you'd have to have a lot of teams kind of sneak out of it. But, you know, in terms of the NFC, just by looking at the playoff picture, it looks like that the NFC is really going to come down to really, really seven or eight teams coming in. You know, the commanders have really fought themselves back into the race. You know, Seattle just had a heartbreaking loss to the Las Vegas Raiders. Josh Jacobs, 86 yard foot touchdown that just walked him off really tough for them. And I, I don't think anybody had a more tougher Sunday than anybody who uh, I, I will include myself in this. Anybody who, who bet the Buccaneers minus three and the Baltimore Ravens minus three and a half. Both of those teams were leading and covering. I'll, I'll start with the Bucs first. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers all year long have just been a complete shell of the team that they have been the last couple of years since Tom Brady has been there. They are a complete shell. They're a complete sham of the team that they that won the Super Bowl and quite frankly that has been dominating teams. And you know, this is a game that Tampa Bay in the second half their defense played great, but you know, I didn't really watch a whole lot of it, but it felt like that they played not to lose. And the Cleveland Browns, who are, you know, Deshaun Watson is going to be back for the Browns. So Jacoby Brissett is start, was starting in his last game against the, against the Buccaneers. And he really gave the Cleveland faithful something to go out on. You know, shout out Dana Rhodes out there in Cleveland. You know, a one-handed touchdown grab from David Njoku with 32 seconds left. And Tampa Bay just could not do anything on offense. They got to a point where they were just getting banged up. And then in overtime, I mean, Amari Cooper is just completely wide open. I mean, I could have thrown this pass to Amari Cooper. Like, there was nobody within 10, 15 yards of Amari Cooper. He basically races it all the way down to the three where the Browns inevitably won the game. Lost that one. And then the Ravens, you know, the Ravens-Jaguars game, this this was just like a whirlwind of emotions. We've had a couple of these games in the NFL Sunday, and especially in the, the Raiders-Seahawks game. But, you know, the the Ravens go down. They take the lead just right after the Jaguars who were kind of being a little bit frisky. I know the Jaguars, you know, a lot of people want to say the same old Jaguars, but the Jaguars occasionally come to play at times. And they came to play today in that fourth quarter against the Baltimore Ravens, you know, and Trevor Lawrence definitely had probably his best performance of his young career. You know, I think you can make the argument that Lawrence, a lot of people, he is underwhelmed. So far in his young NFL career, I, you know, some of that has to do with the fact that Urban Meyer was his head coach last year, who just, you know, Urban Meyer's just a scumbag NFL head coach. He was just an absolute train wreck, an absolute train wreck as a head coach. But now, you know, a competent offensive mind in Doug Peterson. And it looks like that he's kind of gotten something with Trevor Lawrence, you know, 321 yards, three passing touchdowns, including the two at the end. You know, this was a very emotional game and, you know, for the Ravens, you know, I, I don't know how many more times that the Baltimore Ravens can just continuously, just continuously be blowing leads late in games against, 
teams that you feel like that, I mean, against this team, I mean, I don't want to say inferior opponents because there are other couple of blown leads have been against some pretty good teams to say the least. I know Buffalo has kind of, they have a little bit of a fraud watch on them. You know, Miami looks about as for real as can be. They blew a 38 to 14 lead against them. And then you have this game against the Jaguars where now, you know, I wondered very early on after they blew that one game against the Dolphins, if there was something to be concerned about with the Baltimore Ravens. And it, apparently there, there really should be because the Ravens, for the most part, just I don't know what it is with their, these games. I still associate with the Baltimore Ravens with having a dominant defense. And I am still thinking that, you know, Lamar Jackson's still really good. I think he's going to get paid in the offseason, whether that's with the Ravens or whether that's with the New York Jets, who I mean, who really know I'm I'm not really basing that on nothing. But, you know, I think there is something here with the Ravens and just their inability to close out these games where their secondary is just getting completely cooked at the end of these games, whether it's Trevor Lawrence, whether it's Josh Allen or Tua Tungo Vialoa, there is something here with these Baltimore Ravens losses where they just completely fall apart at the end. And I mean, for the Jaguars, you, you got to give credit to the Jaguars that, you know, this is a young team, very, very similar to the bears. Obviously Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields are both going to be compared are both going to be compared a lot because of the fact that they were in the same quarterback draft class. So they obviously will have the comparisons tapped with them no matter what they do throughout their NFL careers. But, you know, Trevor Lawrence probably had himself easily his best game of his NFL career. And then really one more game that I kind of want to touch on just a little bit is uh, this game that I just watched. You know, I was able to catch the second half of the of the Raiders Seahawks game. And really, you want to talk about a game that, you know, by looking at it on paper, you know, the Seahawks only opening up as a four point favorite. You know, I thought that was a little bit curious. You know, the Raiders are not really that good of a team on the road. You know, they have a tendency to, you know, just like the Ravens, who I just talked about, you know, the Raiders are a team that has blown multiple 17 point leads. In fact, they've done it three times this year where they've blown a lead of 17 points or more. Well, the Raiders did not have that problem happen today. They really went toe to toe with the Seattle Seahawks team that has, I think you can make the argument has been kind of a, uh, a team that nobody really saw coming. I know you can make that argument with a couple other NFL teams with the giants and in particular with, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, you know, they trade Russell Wilson in the offseason to the Broncos who, I mean, the, the Broncos absolutely hate Russell Wilson. He is having himself a career low year down there with the Denver Broncos, but the Seahawks were really a team that really kind of just came out of nowhere and have just been overperforming and just really kind of coming out and just beating um, opponents that are really kind of at their level. And this was a game that the rate that the Seahawks, really kind of blew at the end. You know, this was a game. It was tied 27, 27. And then I believe Bo Dow Seattle goes down to score. And then the Raiders with two opportunities on third down, David Carr, Derek Carr, who actually is a, a pretty solid quarterback in terms of NFL starting quarterbacks. I don't think he, I think a lot of people shit on Derek Carr because he has these moments where he's crying in the media, but he also has these moments where he is really good down the stretch of games or and if the game is on the line, Derek Carr is definitely a guy who's coming up big with the big time moments. And it was definitely, you know, and to walk it off with Josh Jacobs, the 86 yard touchdown run, you know, definitely a awesome way to end a awesome game that saw 
a lot of points being scored out west in Seattle. I mean, hey, maybe maybe there's something here to, with the Raiders. I I think maybe the Raiders can maybe ride the ship. You know, they've had a couple back-to-back walk-off wins. Last week they had it against the Broncos. Today they had one today against the Seattle Seahawks. So those are some NFL games. I want to get right into the battle for the jeweled shillelagh. The battle for the jeweled shillelagh. It is Notre Dame and it is USC. And this was one that, you know, I mentioned earlier or in the previous podcast when I did the preview of the Notre Dame USC game, you know, really my main key for how Notre Dame is going to be able to compete with this game was really if their offense was really going to be able to go toe to toe and their defense is going to be able to make a couple stops. Well, I'll get to what didn't work on the offensive side of the ball because I think I think it's pretty simply uh, put to what ha- what went wrong on the defensive side of the ball with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. I mean, Caleb Williams was just, I, I'm going to start right there. They're probably going to give Caleb Williams the Heisman Trophy. And I mean, with the performance that he had against Notre Dame, just just eluding tacklers, like breaking out of sacks. You know, he had the one, I think it was in the third quarter where, you know, you kind of just look up and just start laughing because it's just, he's just making it look so easy. You know, he's break, he broke out of at least, there was three different times where Caleb Williams broke out of a sack, whether it was from Isaiah Foskey or whoever, you know, and then he's breaking it out. And he had the one where, you know, he kind of cuts back, cuts right. You know, when you watch the replay of it, I think everybody will remember it's the one memorable run that's probably going to be played whenever they play his Heisman tape where he's just running on the sideline. He he crossed about 80 yards. He covered about 81 yards on the whatever ESPN uses to track the whenever they use to track the running backs, whenever they try a counter or whenever they cover a whole lot of ground, when they kind of go from field to field. I mean, Caleb Williams was really the ultimate problem for Notre Dame's defense. Like what can you really say about Caleb Williams other than he was just phenomenal. He was absolutely phenomenal. And Notre Dame's defense just could not slow him down to save their lives. You know, he had three rushing touchdowns and it got to a point where he was just absolutely toying with them. I know a couple of the touchdowns, they were on read option plays where he's just not even touched going into the end zone. Like Notre Dame's defense was just completely getting out full, completely got fooled. Uh, first time that Notre Dame had allowed over 400 yards of total offense for this entire year, which I, which I thought was very, very surprising. It also says of how good this Notre Dame defense was this year. I know they've had their moments where they've kind of let opponents back into the game. They've, but they've also had, they've had more highs than lows throughout the entire year. But I mean, this is one that you, know, you can chalk up as a low. I mean, what can you, I mean, Caleb Williams has just been making those plays all year long in the pac 12. And, you know, he just was able to do it on the, under the lights against Notre Dame where they just could not contain him. And that ultimately more than anything else, I mean, I'll get into what wasn't working on the offensive side of the ball, but I mean, number one, what ultimately how Notre Dame lost this game, it was Caleb Williams and his just phenomenal playmaking of just being able to elude rushers, just escaping the pocket, just being very mobile and finding just open guys. I mean, there was one that it just absolutely just, I was just beside myself, just how wide open. I think it was Jordan Addison where it looks like, you know, it was one of the plays where, I mean, there's a couple of these plays where Caleb Williams just absolutely made Notre Dame's defense just look absolutely like they've never even seen a mobile quarterback before in their entire life. Like there was the one, I mean, it was, this was also where uh, Chris Fowler just 
absolutely was just, oh, and he completes it for a first down. And he was like eight yards short of the first down. I mean, I got to say, Chris Fowler, he sucks at calling games for ESPN. He absolutely sucks. Like they have bigger name, bigger name broadcasters where when they call the games, it feels like that this is a big game. You know, Joe Tessitore was really is a really good broadcaster for ESPN. Um, Sean McDonough, really good. I think they should give him the reins. I know he, at one point, both Tessator and Sean McDonough were each on the Monday night football booth, but I mean, Chris Fowler calling these big games, it, he, he sucks. He absolutely sucks at calling these big games, Saturday night football. I mean, ESPN really can't do any better than Chris Fowler. Like they have better broadcasters. You know, you have Dan Schulman, you have Sean McDonough, you know, I mentioned them. But, I mean, you you really can't do no better than Chris Fowler on Saturday Night Football. Like, this guy absolutely sucks. Like, he, like, you know, obviously, I I probably grew up in an era of broadcasters where they made it feel like it was a big game. Like, Brett Musburger, I know he was the old college football. Like, he is, he is my top tier of broadcasting goats. And he just absolutely, you knew that it was a big game. If you had Brett Musburger calling that game and you heard the, you are looking live. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal. And Chris Fowler, he just does not have that. Like he, like it's no offense to him. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he just, he just doesn't do it for me. Like he just doesn't do it for me when he's calling these big games. Like he, he more or less fits like, like he should be calling Tuesday night action games. Like he should be calling a Thursday night game between like a Thursday night pack 12 game. Those are really the games that Chris Fowler should be calling. He shouldn't be calling any games that are Saturday night football with Kurt Kerbstreet. Like, I'm sorry. He just, he sucks. He absolutely sucks. And honestly, ESPN, they were going through that whole time of trying to find the right guy for Monday night football until eventually they threw the bag at Aikman and uh, Joe Buck. ESPN should probably consider doing that with some college football guys. They should consider probably doing that with some couple of uh, big name college football broadcasters I don't know obviously I don't know what Brad Nessler's deal is obviously he used to work with ESPN he took over Vern Lundquist so it's kind of a hard kind of a hard bargain but you know somebody should try and get Chris Fowler somebody should try and get a different broadcasting for Saturday Night Football because Chris Fowler's just not doing it for me and I mean it was mainly with the Caleb Williams stuff but Caleb Williams you know going back to that he you know was just making these plays where you know the one play that he made before I got sidetracked on Chris Fowler, you know, I believe, you know, he, he eluded the pocket, you know, he escaped the pocket, like Notre Dame's front seven was able to put the pressure on USC's offensive line, but Caleb Williams was just able to elude all this pressure until, and then I think he found like Jordan Asson, who I don't know how nobody on Notre Dame's defense just has the, has the smarts to be like, Hey, we should probably keep a couple guys, uh, an eye on Jordan Addison. And this guy's just like, like five or 10 yards down the field with no, like nobody around him. And then he got an extra 10, 15 yards because nobody was even close to him. Like Notre Dame's defense was just getting absolutely cooked by Caleb Williams last night. Like chef Williams was in the kitchen and he was cooking up some Notre Dame fighting Irish defense defenders. And he cooked it up. So gourmet, a 10, 10 score that is going to win him the Heisman trophy. Now, I'm going to get to the offensive side of the ball for why Notre Dame didn't win this game. Cause quite frankly, that was really the biggest key for how Notre Dame was going to be able to at least be able to keep up with this game. I know it, I know it sounds very, very easy. Hindsight's always 2020, but you know, these two plays, 
in my opinion, made the biggest difference between Notre Dame covering the spread and making it maybe a three-point game and them losing the game by the margin that they did. So let's go after USC, I believe, kicked a field goal. They're already up 7 nothing at this point. I believe they're already up 7 nothing, or they're already up 10 nothing. This is very early in the game. Now, mind you, it's a fourth down and one. And Notre Dame has a tendency. Tommy Reese, the Mitchapalooza play, the Mitchapalooza play where they run the the QB sneak with the tight end. And, you know, it's a a cute little gadget play that I saw Andy Reid use on, I think it was like on a Sunday night football game. I forgot which game it was that he, that they used it. I think it was against the Buccaneers. It was, it was very early in the year, but Kansas city used this very same play against Tampa Bay very early in the year. And with Patrick Mahomes in that offense, you could be able to pull that kind of stuff off. But Tommy Reese then stole that play. It works. Well, not it's not going to work if you are running this play every single game since. Notre Dame has ran that play six straight games in a row. Have at least ran that play at least once six straight games in a row. So tell me why you think that running it here again against USC, where I'm sure that's going to be in the scouting report, that USC is going to be like, hey, there, here's a play that we should be looking out for. Short yardage back. Mitchapalooza, they're going to run a tight end sneak. Didn't even come close to converting. Why are we running this play every single game? We don't have any other uh, short yardage plays that we could use. Like, we have to try. Like, why are we trying to run these plays, this play, a bunch of times in a row. If you continuously run something, eventually the defense is going to pick up of what you're going to do, and they're going to find a way to stop it. And USC obviously had been scouting that play. They obviously have been scouting what Notre Dame had been doing in terms of short yardage plays because that apparently is the only one Notre Dame has because it's the one that they've ran six games in a row. That lost them. That that was one play that lost them the game because it basically killed a drive that they were going to be able to go down the field. And if they would have, I mean, Drew Pine was actually pretty good in this game. Like Pine didn't throw an incompletion until I believe the fourth quarter. And then he had a, uh, he had a bad interception late in the game, but you know, it really felt like it really felt like that USC just flat out dominated this game. But on the offensive side of the ball, Notre Dame just, you know, that was one play that really kind of killed the, killed the momentum for me for Notre Dame, because if Notre Dame was able to go down and score and then, that was one play because that was just dumb. I don't know why Tommy, like Tommy Reese is just in love with finding plays that any offensive mind of genius has on watching either Sunday night football or Monday night football and installing it in his playbook. And then he's going to run that play right into the ground. Well, he ran that Mitchapalooza play into the ground so much that USC was probably already scouting for it and knew that it was going to happen. And then the second play was second half. Notre Dame's only down by 10 at this point. I think it's only 10. Notre Dame's driving. It looks like that they're getting ready to at least make this somewhat of a closer game than what it was made to be. Well, either Jaden Thomas runs into the ball during the snap. Drew Pine fumbles it, and that was pretty much it for Notre Dame's offense. They were basically in catch-up mode the rest of the way. You know, Drew Pine had a couple had a couple good touchdown passes. Like, Pine had himself a pretty good day in terms of throwing the football, I think he only threw a couple incompletions. He had one bad interception that was late in the game that led to another USC score. But, you know, for the most part, Drew Pine was very good. Notre Dame did not need to play the perfect game, but they need to play about an 80% perfect game if they were going to at least be able 
to compete in this game. And, you know, when you look at, when you actually watch this game, you know, Notre Dame was not really, it seemed like USC just absolutely dominated this game, but that was just due to Caleb Williams just making Notre Dame's defense just look absolutely foolish. But, you know, Notre Dame's offense, you know, the, the play calling was a little bit suspect to say the least, you know, and, you know, really those two plays where they ran the fourth down play that got stopped and Drew Pine fumbling to start the second half was really the two plays that sunk Notre Dame the most in this game. They ended the season eight and four, which, which is a, a, a mild improvement from where I thought that this season was going to head after they lost that game to Stanford, which Stanford also uh, is going to be looking for a new coach. David Shaw resigned after losing to BYU yesterday. So there you go, Notre Dame. You, you basically let David Shaw beat you in Notre Dame stadium. I mean, that, that was a game that, I, I still can't believe that took place. So Notre Dame season ends at an eight and four mark and it will wrap up. I'm sure they will be going to a bowl game. We will be talking about and giving you a preview of that bowl game whenever that gets revealed. And that will probably get revealed in the next couple of weeks. But for Notre Dame, Marcus Freeman wrapping up the eight and four season in Freeman's first official season as Notre Dame head coach definitely started definitely did not start off on the right foot. I mean, when you talk about the first two games of the season, you know, losing to Ohio state and it, and it was a game that Notre Dame probably should have won. It was a game that, you know, Notre Dame, if they made a couple more better play call, better offensive play calls, they probably maybe win that game against Ohio state. And then, you know, the two, really the two games that are going to stink out, that are going to stick out for me in Notre Dame season are, in terms of losses are that loss to Marshall, you know, coming, losing that game to Marshall, letting Marshall come into your own stadium and just letting them absolutely hoe you. And honestly, you know, the way Freeman was able to really kind of put the season back on track right after that. Oh, and two start. And, you know, if you want to go back even further, you know, he lost the bowl game against Oklahoma state where they were up 28 to seven in that one. And they just could not find any sort of offensive rhythm in the second half and let Oklahoma state basically claw, their entire way back into that game. But the way he was able to write the ship, you know, Owen Freeman, you know, after those two games, you know, everybody was really ready to fire Marcus Freeman. Like Freeman was, it seemed like that it was getting ready to throw Marcus Freeman into the bay. But, you know, he was able to really write the ship eight and two in their last 10 games, you know, highlighted by the two wins against North Carolina and Clemson, two real dominating victories. Obviously they dominated BYU and, you know, obviously the Stanford, the Stanford and the Marshall losses are going to stick out with this season because those are the losses that basically are the difference between having a 10 and two season and having the eight and four season that they had. And plus, I mean, it, it seemed like at one point in time after they lost that game to Stanford, that things were really going to be going downhill for, for Notre Dame. And it was just not, it was not, it, it definitely Freeman, it definitely wrote the ship to uh, put Notre Dame in a position where, you know, they could be probably be looking into the transfer port. Cause really the one thing that's holding Notre Dame right now is a difference maker at the quarterback position. And that's really the difference between what's holding them back right now and what they need to get to the next level. And I mean, it's basically the same thing that we're saying with the Chicago bears, you know, the Notre Dame is basically a quarterback away. The bears are a quarterback away, but you know, Marcus Freeman, I mean, to basically write the ship from where it, where it looked like it was heading towards going to be a six and six season or a five and seven season to, for him to be able to write the ship eight and four at a very, a very respectable mark, you know, and really being competitive in all these games, you know, 
I know I said nine and three was really going to be the high mark. You know, eight and four, we kind of finished around. I obviously did not expect them to lose to Marshall or Stanford. So we were pretty much right on the mark for how how this Notre Dame season really turned out. You know, Tyler Buckner not being there after the first couple games. But Drew Pine is definitely making a case for, for himself to being the starting quarterback. But I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm not too high on Drew Pine. I, if Notre Dame is definitely going to be going out for the transfer portal for a next starting quarterback. I would, I would be all for it. You know, Drew Pine to me is like the perfect guy that you want as like the backup quarterback at Notre Dame. Like he's definitely not a guy that I would feel very confident in going forward. And that was like heading into this matchup with USC. It was, it was like, you know, who do we really feel confident about heading into this matchup? You know, it's basically Drew Pine versus Caleb Williams. And it was ultimately the biggest difference in, in this game, you know, Caleb Williams was the difference maker on, on offense for USC. And, you know, the Drew Pine fumble late in the second half made the biggest impact in that one. So Notre Dame lost that one 38 to 27. They finished the season eight and four, and we'll probably be bowling. We'll probably be going to like the citrus bowl or the champ sports bowl, whatever it is. They'll probably go to like a, a mid-level bowl game where they'll probably play Florida state. Maybe they'll maybe they'll take on an ACC team, maybe a, a big 12 team, probably like a Texas or, or an Oregon state, you know, it'll be seen. And we will definitely recap it or not really recap. And we'll definitely give you a preview of what to expect whenever the Notre Dame bowl game is announced. And just one more thing in terms of the college football world. So obviously this was the last week of the college football regular season. And I really want to get into and touch on a couple of games in particular. It was rivalry weekend. We talked on Notre Dame USC, but the other game, the game of the entire weekend that I definitely want to talk about, and it is Michigan going into the horseshoe and beating Ohio state for the second year in a row. It was the largest margin of victory for Michigan over Ohio state since 1976. First time since 2000 and 2001 that Michigan has been able to beat Ohio state in back-to-back seasons. And this was one that they definitely dominated this game. in. it looked like at one point, you know, I, you know, I said on the, uh, when I w- was previewing this game going into the weekend, I was really nervous about how, how Michigan was going to re- respond in terms of go toe to toe with the Ohio state offense, especially with Blake Corum, who was banged up, didn't really play a whole lot in this game. And, you know, you kind of wondered how much of last year's game was in the back of Ohio State's mind. You know, you really kind of figure, you know, we want to be able to get revenge. And it looked like at one point in time that Ohio State was able to do that. But but Ohio State's defense was just getting absolutely cooked by J.J. McCarthy. Like, like I bet you Notre Dame's defense, he, he was getting chefed up and cooked. J.J. McCarthy was cooking up some Buckeyes on Saturday night, you know, with these deep bombs. And it was just so shocking because for the most part, we knew Michigan as the punch your mouth, run it down your throat football team. Now, J.J. McCarthy would occasionally make plays here and there where he makes a deep ball, makes a nice pass. I mean, he was making all the great throws on Saturday, and it really made all the difference. And it felt like that Ohio State was really playing this game not to lose. And you could definitely tell in terms of the offensive play calling, Michigan was very aggressive in their play calling. They definitely went for it a lot. And then in the fourth quarter, Michigan just absolutely laid the mollywop on them. They powerbombed the Buckeyes 
through three tables and just absolutely broke their morale. They absolutely broke their morale. They broke their entire fan base to the point where they're already talking about they want to fire Ryan Day. Like, like and you know, it, it's like Harbaugh said, you know, some guys are born on third. Ryan Day was a guy who was born on third. He inherited the program that Urban Meyer basically built, and now he's just trying to lead his guys. And now, I mean, two years in a row losing to Michigan, and oh, man, I mean, especially when – Ohio State was just absolutely dominating this rivalry at one point in time. And, you know, it's a good win for Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines. They're definitely putting themselves in position to be going to the playoff. They obviously are probably going to win the Big Ten. They're going to beat the shit out of Purdue, and they're going to go on and go to the college football playoff. But that was the performance of the entire weekend was the Michigan Wolverines just going into the horseshoe and just shutting down the Ohio State Buckeyes and really kind of making a fool out of them. And really JJ McCarthy really kind of proving a lot of critics. Cause that was really the big thing that everybody was kind of worried about was is JJ McCarthy going to be able to make enough plays to be able to help Michigan carry its offense? Is he going to be able to go toe to toe? And a lot of people didn't think that JJ McCarthy was going to be able to go toe to toe with this Ohio state offense. And that was something. And also in terms of like a recruiting side of things, Notre Dame chose Tyler Buckner over J.J. McCarthy, and both of those guys started this year in the horseshoe. Now, granted, I mean, Tyler Buckner, that was his first career start, but J.J. McCarthy, that was the biggest game of his entire career, and he definitely rose to the moment. Definitely something that we should, that I'll be definitely keeping my eye on for what, um, you know, for what could have been. You know, Tommy Reese wanted Buckner, and that was the report. You know, Tommy Reese wanted Tyler Buckner. J.J. McCarthy was a local product from around this area, from the Chicagoland area. So he's very familiar with Notre Dame and, you know, being able to lead Michigan into the big house or not the big house, the horseshoe and just absolutely dominating Ohio state and just skull fucking them. It was, it was just a one-sided dominating affair and Michigan definitely deserved it. I mean, Ohio state, I mean, there's a lot of problems. They might, I wouldn't say they have a lot of problems, but I mean, their family is just losing their minds. I mean, they're trying to get rid of Ryan Day. Like, it's it's funny. You know, you got Ohio State fans are so spoiled through the entire Urban Meyer era where basically Urban Meyer was just a shoe into an 11 and 10 games. He beats the shit out of Michigan, and then you basically go to either the college football playoff or you go to a BCS bowl game. I mean, Ohio State's still in a, a position to where they could still be in the playoff. I don't think that they should. But obviously, they would have to have a lot of things go wrong for them to even still be considered for the college football playoff. They would have to have USC and TCU both losing in the same weekend. And even that, and that was really the only way that I could see Ohio State sneaking back into the playoff. But other than that, I mean, their their season is done. We're not going to have, we're going to have a college football playoff where we have no Alabama, we have no Ohio State, and we have no Clemson. Like, I remember at one point in time, that was just the norm for the college football playoff. And now it's just really refreshing. I, you know, I'm at the expense of Notre Dame, USC. I want to see them hold on, win the Pac-12. And TCU, you know, it's definitely nice to see some different teams getting into the college football playoff. It seems like, you know, the parity in college football is really starting to pick up. You know, it's definitely different from a couple of years ago where we just had the same three teams going into the playoff and then you'd occasionally throw in Notre Dame and Oklahoma or, you know, you, you name the team, whether it was Michigan state, Washington, 
it, it definitely feels good to see some different uh, college football teams getting into the playoff. You know, I know the playoff is expanding in the next couple of years. They're going to be expanding it to 12 teams. But to see this four-team format where we possibly could see Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC. And I think that's what the college football playoff is going to be at this time next week. And that's what I think is going to be the final four. I think it's going to be Georgia against USC. And it's going to be Michigan and TCU. I mean, that is just what I feel is going to be the college football playoff. And obviously the only way that Ohio state or Alabama gets back in it is if both USC and TCU both lose. And then that kind of creates a situation where, you know, I think that's like a chaos scenario for the committee, but I don't think that that's going to happen, you know, but you know, Hey, what do I know? You know, I say a lot of things are going to happen and usually they don't happen. And we also have breaking news. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. This is from Ian Rappaport. Bears wide receiver Darnell Mooney likely needs season-ending ankle surgery. It looks like that is going to be the end for Darnell Mooney for this entire season. And, oh, man, this sucks. You know, he got rolled up on um, a play where he was blocking, got rolled up on the play was starting to come to him. Oh, man. This absolutely sucks. You know, losing Darnell Mooney, you know, it looked like that him and Fields were starting to really create the chemistry. He got off to a really a tough start where, you know, the Bears weren't really passing the ball a whole lot, but, you know, the Bears really still aren't doing a whole lot of passing. But it definitely sucks that Darnell Mooney is going to be out for the rest of the season and the Bears wide receiver core just takes another hit and another injury. You know, it's uh, the, the Bears are starting to get hit with a bunch of injuries. And I mean, it's not. It's not a bad thing. You know, it's definitely setting themselves up for better draft position in the next round. But, I mean, obviously, when we say draft position, I mean, they gave their second-round pick to the Steelers for Chase Claypool, who barely even sees the field half the time. So that's really kind of the uh, the the devil's advocate. Like, the eh, like, yeah, this is good that we're losing, but, I mean, that second-round pick is going to be a pretty high draft pick that's going to the Steelers. Anyway. I want to touch a little bit. We had some White Sox news. So the White Sox have made a signing and have also been linked to a couple other rumors that I will give you give you some of my thoughts on and for what I think. So the White Sox have agreed to a one-year deal for right-handed pitcher Mike Clevenger. I know a lot of people, I know White Sox fans, myself included, are obviously very familiar with Clevenger. He was a former member of the Cleveland Guardians, spent four years there and had some very good career numbers when he was with the Guardians, got traded in a blockbuster deal to the San Diego Padres, and then had Tommy John surgery, was out for the entire 2021 season, and then kind of worked his way back into it with the 2022 season. I think there were some rumors about whether his knee was fully healthy, but I actually want to say that I like this signing. It's, you know, obviously people are going to look at it and say, well, Clevenger's not good anymore. Disagree. I disagree, and here's why. So we're talking about a guy who just came off Tommy John surgery in the 2020. Well, he suffered the injury at 21. He's had two of them and people talk about his velocity went down, but this was a signing and it looks like that it's going to be for at least 8 million bucks, a one-year deal pending a physical, even though it has not been fully announced yet. But if Clevenger joins in, then it's going to be a, a, a mainly, right-handed dominating starting rotation. And I, I actually like this move. You know, last year he posted a four 33 ERA and 114 innings pitched. Obviously that was coming off of the Tommy John surgery. 
and people are, and obviously he got a little bit blasted in the playoffs. He suffered a right knee sprain in spring training that sidelined him for the first month of the season. And he was also sidelined with a right tricep injury. So he kind of had a couple of setbacks in his injury, but I mean, he's going to be 32 years old. But I mean, when you look at, he had a 296 ERA in those three years that he was with the Indians and the Padres, you know, and he had over a 28.3% strikeout rate, 40% ground ball weight, and only a 9% uh, walk rate. So, you know, obviously I like, you know, Ethan Katz has been able to kind of get the most out of starting pitchers. I know some people might be overrating that, but I actually think that the way that Katz has been able to really sort of the really develop these starting pitchers, the way he's been able to develop Dylan Cease, the way he was able to kind of get what he got out of Johnny Cueto this year, it really kind of bodes the question of whether this is what the White Sox starting rotation is going to be going forward or whether they're going to be adding some more veteran arms. They are linked to, you know, a couple of rumors are linking them to trying and, and acquiring the twins outfielder, Max Kepler. And obviously, you know, Kepler, I would be, it's, it's an all right move. You know, it's not one that's really going to knock your socks off. It's not one that's really going to knock my socks off, but you can obviously see why they, they made the move. It fits a team need because they need to fit two outfield corner spots with AJ Pollock and not coming back next year. And then only having Luis Robert as their only outfielder on the entire roster. So they're going to have to be looking to fill to fill out the roster with some outfielders. I mean, obviously Oscar Colas, the number two ranked prospect in the white Sox farm system is going to be in the mix for one of those corner outfield spots. And I honestly think they probably should just let him take one of the corner spots, but you know, whether the Kepler, whether they can be able to finish off, trading for max kepler you know what's it going to be able to give up and i also saw that they're looking to get max kepler and a starting pitcher from the minnesota twins which i would kind of just say no thanks on the starting pitching part from the twins i would just try and get max kepler i i don't know why everybody is so they're like oh we gotta get max kepler max kepler i look at this as it's a typical white Sox move it's a guy who had a good had one good year in his past and is still looking to replicate that sort of season. And the white Sox are obviously going to be looking and trying to have some sort of the same thing with Max Kepler. They want to see if they can be able to revive Max Kepler's career and really kind of try and get something out of him. But obviously that's not official yet, but you know, Clevenger, I really like, you know, obviously people, you know, Clevenger's fastball rate took a, took a, a, a bit of a dip. I couldn't be able to be able to speak properly, but I think it'll, it'll definitely improve the rotation. I mean, it's if the White Sox can be able to get anywhere close to what, you know, it, it's like what I'm saying with Kepler, you know, Kepler and Cle- Clevenger are both really in the same boat where if they could get at least like any sort of resemblance to what they were, like if Clevenger, like if they can get the Mike Clevenger that he was with the Cleveland Indians, then, you know, then that's a winner of a trade. And that, I mean, they basically just went bargain diving and just revived Mike Clevenger's career. That That is going to be huge for the rotation going into next year. If Ethan Katz can be able to get out of Mike Clevenger, what he was with the Cleveland Indians, you know, I know he kind of had those rough patches with the San Diego Padres, but you know, I, if the, if Katz can be able to get this out of Mike Clevenger, then the rotation is just going to be that much better. I mean, you know, obviously he fixed Lucas Giolito before Giolito put on some weight and then lost some velocity on his fastball. You know, he obviously 
is still very accommodated with Johnny Cueto and what he was able to do. Obviously, Katz was very beneficial in Dylan Cease's development, but, you know, obviously a couple guys, you know, you hope that Clevenger could be able to follow the model and just be one of those signings, kind of like a Carlos Rodon was in 2021, where he just kind of comes out of nowhere and ends up being probably one of your more reliable starting pitchers going into the rotation next year. But, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, this obviously nothing is official yet is pending the physical. So if he passes the physical, then Mike Clevenger will probably be the number five starter for the Chicago White Sox. And with that, you know, some other White Sox stuff to be reporting on. So, you know, the, the obvious team needs with the White Sox are something that I haven't really gotten to too much, too much about, you know, because I feel like that their needs have really been the same the past like two years. They need a second baseman and now they need two outfielder corner spots. They got the starting pitcher today in Mike Clevenger. And I want to, I, I still want to see them build some more depth because if there's anything that this White Sox team is really lacking in its depth, I want to see them kind of build some depth because if there's anything that we know about this core of guys that the White Sox have is that these guys are, are very injury prone. These guys are very, very injury prone. So for the White Sox, I just want to see them be able to add some depth, add some infield depth, whether that means bringing back Elvis Andrews as sort of a utility guy. I mean, they have it in Leary Garcia, but he probably won't see the field as much as he did when Tony La Russa was around. Obviously the second base role, it looks like it's, they're going to kind of be a committee one, probably go with a younger guy, which I'm not really too keen on, but you know, with the way of what's going to happen going next year with the ban of the shift, you're going to have to need a, a second baseman that could be able to be able to move from spot to spot. And whether that's going out and signing a short, or basically putting Romy Gonzalez there, you know, Romy Gonzalez is a really good athletic infielder. I think he's a solid infielder. He's an okay second baseman. I mean, he, the way that he bats, I mean, he is just absolutely dreadful at the plate half the time. I mean, guy could not hit a 96 mile per hour fastball to save his life. But then again, I can't either. So who am I to talk? But you know, those are just a couple of options for what the white Sox. you know, they're reportedly in on Brandon Nemo, who is probably one of the big fish in the big market. I could definitely see them. I, if they sign him to a corner outfield spot, along with Max Kepler, um, if they finalize the trade for Kepler, I think they're, probably going to they obviously were in the market for Sean Murphy but obviously people are mentioned obviously that's with a bunch of seven other teams so they have competition to try and get Sean Murphy to try and shore up the defense behind the plate but obviously the White Sox are not giving up Andrew Vaughn he's going to be the first baseman going into next season and that's that really looks like that it's going to be the reality is that Andrew Vaughn is going to be the second base that's going to be the starting first baseman it doesn't look like Jose Abreu is coming back so that's obviously very, very tough to see, but you know, so that's that's the latest in White Sox news in some White Sox towns. All right, so now in these upcoming shows, I've also failed to recognize the some current numbers that we missed. The last episode was the Carlton Fisk episode, episode number seventy-two, as this will be episode number seventy-three. Next episode will be the Aloy Jimenez episode. But I want to, so I didn't really get a chance to give give out some awards since we are in the award season. I know I missed the baseball awards, but in the next couple of shows, I will be giving out White Sox awards. I will be giving out awards based on 
what happened in the White Sox season. I will give the White Sox most valuable player, position player, most White so- most valuable White Sox position player, the most valuable starting pitcher, which I think a lot of people will probably already know who it is. And the White Sox, the moment of the year, the best moment of the year, the worst moment of the year, the White Sox rookie of the year, and the worst White Sox rookie of the year. All right, and those are just a number of awards that we will be looking to hand out. So I'm just going to go out and start with really an easy one for you, the White Sox Most Valuable Pitcher Award. Most Valuable Pitcher Award. It's Dylan Cease. I mean, what can you really say? I mean, Dylan Cease finished second in the Cy Young, finished second in the Cy Young voting. You know, he really, you know, got that mustache, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, and his little team photo, and he really took off. He His career really took off, and that was something that, you know, a lot of White Sox pitchers and catchers and people who were around the White Sox, they talked about Dylan Cease, and they said, this guy has has really good stuff. But it really was a matter of whether Dylan Cease actually knew that he had really good stuff. And this year, he finally proved it. He finally, finally proved it. He had... 78 walks, which led Major League Baseball. That's really the only thing concerning. But 227 strikeouts. He had the ERA of 2.20. He had the 14 wins, the 184 innings pitched. I mean, Dylan Cease is easily the White Sox most valuable pitcher of the year. He won it in a very close vote with him and Johnny Cueto. You know, Johnny Cueto finished in a very close second. You know, I think you can make the argument that if the White Sox did not have Johnny Cueto, I mean, this season would definitely would have been a lot worse. I mean, Cueto definitely kind of came out at the at the last minute. You know, he was one of these signings that they signed because Lance Lynn got hurt because they failed to really kind of build up the pitching depth in the starting rotation. So they basically went out and signed Johnny Cueto. And Johnny Cueto, and they got every ounce of good pitching out of Johnny Cueto this year. He absolutely stunned on him and definitely saved some innings for the starting for the White Sox starting pitching. All right. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this edition of the feeling Soxy Clint Klaus show, giving you the full weekend show. We had a lot to had a lot to talk about, give you a lot of my greatest takes on what happened with the bears game, you know, Notre Dame, some other NFL games, you know, just a overall a good, a good talking point, you know, obviously, you guys love t- hearing me talk. So, hey, thank you for listening to the podcast. Hit subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe and tell their friends to subscribe to the upcoming podcast that nobody knows about. And this is soon going to be the best podcast in Northwest Indiana. So, you know, you want to turn your friends on to it. All right. Thank you for listening. 